Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Good morning, and welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams, and with me in the booth today is famed author, physicist, NASA technologist, and a member of the International Academy of Astronautics, and fellow of the British Interplanetary Society. I give you Les Johnson. Les, welcome aboard. Oh, glad to be here. So the subject of today, of which you are perhaps the most qualified individual to speak to, is interstellar travel. Is this something humanity can look forward to? Is it currently something that is still a dream, possibly generations away or centuries, and other related questions? So my first question for you, though, is could you tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got from, say, inspiration and an interest in space to becoming a NASA technologist and and a famed author who writes about this uh, quite considerably? Well, I I don't know about the famed part of it, but I'll take the author part. And and I have to have to give a disclaimer that although I work for NASA, I write books on my own time and any opinion I give here is just my own not my Mm -hmm. employer, although there are times when I wish they were my employers. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, no, the journey for me, oh, I'm not, I'm pretty typical for a lot of NASA employees in terms of interest in space. I I watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon when I was seven years old. My parents woke me up late at night. I think it was 11 o'clock Eastern time. I was probably wearing footy pajamas, uh, watched a little grainy black and white picture of that. My sister hooked me on Star Trek, the original series, watching the reruns with her late on Friday nights down in our basement. And I was always kind of a nerdy kid anyway. I I was doing a lot of reading, very good at science and math. And so I decided I wanted to work for NASA. And that pretty much has been my single-minded determination since I was about 12 years old. Uh, So I went to undergraduate school, got a BA in physics, got a good well-rounded liberal arts degree, which is what I think has helped me dramatically in my, my work as well as my uh, my writing. Then I went on to Vanderbilt and studied physics. I uh, got my master's degree. Went to work for a company here in Huntsville doing defense stuff because the first job I applied for at NASA, I didn't get. And I applied again and I started working for the agency back in 1990, working on different advanced propulsion, but not really with interstellar in mind until around the year 2000. So 22 years ago, it just seems like yesterday, Uh, There was a study going to be conducted at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory on a successor mission to Voyager called Interstellar Probe. And the goal was to send a robotic probe out of the solar system traveling three times faster than Voyager, not to reach another star, but to eventually get to about 500 to 1,000 astronomical units uh, before the people who launched it died. To, to be blunt, that was kind of one of the requirements. They wanted to, to see their data after they launched it. So I got involved in that study and realized that there are a lot of technologies that had not been developed for space propulsion once you leave the Earth and once you get out into space, in space propulsion, which is a very different problem than just getting out of the gravity well. 
And I got involved in looking at a lot of these and realized that some of them could eventually lead not only to meeting the needs of that interstellar probe mission, but from a physics point of view, could conceivably be scaled up to allow us to take a reasonable trip to another star in the future, even though we have no clue how to engineer those systems right now. So that's what got me engaged. And I started working on uh, solar sails, nuclear propulsion, ion propulsion, and eventually settled uh, primarily working on something called light sails, solar and laser sails. But that's what got my interest in professionally in interstellar. But it was way cool for me because I've also been a lifelong science fiction reader. So as I got involved looking at laser sails and solar sails, I was thinking back to some of the great science fiction stories I read as a kid and as a young adult. And here I was trying to help make them real, uh, which couldn't be any cooler for somebody than, than that, to me anyway. So that's kind of my story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, I'm hearing a lot of uh, parallels, and it sounds like, uh, yeah, your work preceded these projects by uh, quite a bit, but I'm hearing some parallels to Project Dragonfly and Breakthrough Starshot, and, and of course, the work of Sonny White, Harold Sonny White, and, you know, Cuvier Drive. Is it, um, well, now, for starters, did you, did you and NASA Eagle works there? Did, did, did your work ever coincide with uh, what Sonny White was doing? Sonny White came along a little bit later, but yeah, he and I crossed paths many times through our NASA connections. We were both doing some NASA work, not related to interstellar together. And then since we realized we had a common love and passion, we've been in communication since then. Uh, Sonny and his his organization uh, has been a, a sponsor of the Interstellar Research Group Symposia in the past. And so he and I speak often. I've, I've been a reviewer for some of his grants that he's, mm-hmm. uh, he's issued. Um, I, I had the, the benefit of being mentored by the great uh, Dr. Robert Forward. Uh, you mentioned Project Dragonfly and such. And mm-hmm. He came up with a lot of those ideas for interstellar travel. And I got to know Bob before he passed uh, way too early, over 20 years ago. Um, so, yeah. And the Breakthrough Starshot folks, I, I am kind of an informal on and off again consultant for them on light sales and have been to several of their meetings. So that that's an exciting activity where they are actually working toward launching a robotic interstellar probe in the near term, which would be awesome. But they have a lot of technology challenges to overcome to, to get there. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, in, in this report here for on the interstellar probe, was uh, is it fair to say light sail technology was uh, considered the best bet for powering this probe? Well, it, in the original studies, it was one of the leading candidates. That and uh, nuclear fission, fission electric propulsion, uh, we have mm-hmm. solar electric propulsion craft, but when you get far from the sun, of course, you don't have the sun to power it, so you have to bring along a power source. So the early studies said that we really ought to be investing in nuclear reactors for spacecraft, uh, solar and laser sails, and all that. Now, now the mission concept for Interstellar Probe has evolved over the last 20-some years. There's a new incarnation of the mission, same goals, essentially, but they're no longer... Uh, going to depend on advanced propulsion. I think they got tired of waiting on it to be matured. And so they have looked at how you might do the mission using chemical rockets with close solar passes, kind of a gravity assist at the sun. And it turns out you can get a pretty rapid escape from the solar system doing the brute force approach with rockets, but it'll pretty much be a dead end. It won't, that approach won't be a stepping stone to Alpha Centauri. It'll do the interstellar probe, but it won't really help us get going any faster than that. So it's a great mission from a science point of view, probably implementable in the near to medium term. I absolutely support doing it, but it's not really gonna be the stepping stone to the stars that I had hoped it would be. 
Mm-hmm. I see. So looking at, just based on what you're saying here, um, looking at light sails and advanced propulsion there over time, I do feel like there's been sort of a an evolution there. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it started sort of with uh, nuclear pulse propulsion that evolved to nuclear rockets, fusion rockets, light sails, um, I would imagine there's, you know, there's been some uh, overlap there too, and maybe even a few callbacks. Like, yeah, we haven't investigated this in a little while. Let's uh, let's consider that again. But um, yeah, is uh, was nuclear pulse propulsion, for example, was that the first interstellar concept? I don't think it started as an interstellar concept. Uh, mm-hmm. It started as a, a response to the Cold War and the potential militarization of space. Uh, the whole uh, uh, pulse approach, of course, the great Freeman Dyson was instrumental in that in developing the ideas behind Project Orion. And mm-hmm. for the listeners who, who may not be familiar with that, it, it is a, it is a, a I'd say a, a, a brutishly elegant propulsion system that we'll never build. <laughs> um, uh, imagine, you know, building a uh, a big steel ablative plate the size of the first floor of a of a skyscraper. Uh, and and the rest of the skyscrapers made you know hermetically sealed for space, and you put people and supplies in there, and then under that big steel plate, you start exploding uh, hydrogen bombs once every three seconds to get it off the ground and get it into space, and, and you keep doing that after you're in space to accelerate up to you know five ten percent the speed of light. Uh, physically, it should be possible, and there are actually some non-nuclear explosive tests done that you can you can see really cool videos of on the internet. But this mm-hmm. was all developed. The idea was initially developed, it's my understanding, as a way to fight the Cold War if it got hot in space. Mm-hmm. And we would launch a whole bunch of these from the ground to go fight the Soviet Union in orbit, right? And, mm-hmm. and it was after they had done the analysis of how well this performed that they realized, hey, wait a minute, we might be able to use this to send the probe to another star. Of course, it would be a, a Hail Mary last-ditch effort because if you did that, you would, of course, you know, contaminate the biosphere <laughs> pretty oh, significantly. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to be doing that anytime soon. And then yeah. that also led then to the ideas of, well, can we mimic, you know, the power source of the sun with nuclear fusion, which physicists have been trying to do for, for power for decades. And physics says, yeah, you can do this. It's just the engineering hadn't caught up with it. And once we have fusion power, then the next step would be miniaturizing the system so you can put it on a spacecraft and use it in space. So mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things that from you know from a feasibility point of view, yeah, we ought to be able to do it. But engineering hasn't caught up with that possibility yet with with nuclear anyway. Yeah, and I do I do very much like that description. I said something very similar once that NPP was brutalistic, but you can't. It, Undeniably, it would be effective, right? It, it would be effective. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, I was on a, uh, uh, I guess it was a Discovery Channel show about evacuating Earth. That was going to postulate that the whole world was going to be destroyed. How would you save humanity? And mm-hmm. the idea that was the one I settled on as the most near-term way to send some kind of space arc. Mm-hmm. Out. And if the planet were going to be destroyed anyway, you know what the heck? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but only yeah. under those circumstances. Yeah, and I mean, it was uh, an elegant idea in its own way uh, when it uh, evolved into, you know, we could use this for interstellar travel, right? It was kind of like uh, swords into plowshares. We've got no shortage of nukes, so stick them in a ship, use them as propulsion. Is that uh, would it, That's my understanding anyway, that that sort of evolved that way 
Uh, yeah, that's my understanding also. And hmm. I, I had the opportunity to discuss this with, with Dr. Dyson oh, at, wow. a, at a workshop a few years ago. And I, I was, you know, quite a fanboy. I got a picture with him, of course, but I, I didn't have a copy of any of his papers to get signed. I wish I had. But he described mm -hmm. uh, some of their antics and how they tested that. And uh, it, that, that was a different era. They actually did some unofficial testing with requisition explosives that they didn't actually requisition <laughs> during the night because they couldn't get approval to do official tests. And eventually they got approval to do it. But today that would land people in prison, right? But yeah. I guess the, the, you know, the 50s were a different era. It, it was a lot of fun talking to him about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I imagine. Um, now, in terms of fusion rockets, uh, you I wanted to mention, since we uh, you mentioned the some specifics there, Project Orion, Project Daedalus, and since then, Project Icarus. These, were, these are feasibility studies to try and realize a fusion rocket. Now, in that case, what, uh, what exactly is the power source? Uh, how does that work there? You mentioned miniaturizing the sun, but uh, can you explain to the listeners in, using words like deuterium pellets? <laughs> <laughs> and well, the way I'm, I'm going to go even simpler than that, because I don't know how they're actually going to get it to work in miniature, right? There are lots of different ways to do a fusion reaction. Uh, of course, the sun does it brute force. I mean, it's the mass all that hydrogen being squeezed together until finally the helium gets squeezed together enough and it be, I mean, the hydrogen gets squeezed together enough and it becomes helium, releases energy, and that's the outward pressure that keeps the sun from collapsing on itself and causes it to shine, all that energy is released. Then there are uh, ways to do fusion where you have the, the, the heavy hydrogen, the deuterium uh, reaction. There, there are ways that use helium-3, which is uh, one of the reasons that uh, people want to uh, mine the moon. Uh, to get the helium-3 that's been deposited there from the solar wind to help catalyze the fusion reaction. One of the most <laughs> elegant solutions I saw for miniaturizing it, but it has problems in and of itself, is that you, you get a fusion uh, fuel, but you catalyze the reaction by injecting antimatter into it. And, oh. and you get the fusion reaction going by squirting in a little bit of antimatter here and there. And that, that looked really, really promising, again, from a fundamental physics point of view, but then you have the problems of, well, how do you, you know, create, capture, and safely store enough antimatter? <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, a thimble full of antimatter would blow up a medium-sized city. So yeah. you, have to, you have to be really careful with that stuff. But at the basic level, yeah, that ought to work. Yeah. And... So in terms of nuclear rockets, so nuclear, thermal, nuclear, electric, right? That is that is something we could see very soon, if I'm well, not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, Aside from the obvious aspect of it's going to cost a lot to build these, they are, you know, fully realizable using technology we understand. That's right. We, we build solar electric propulsion today. We could build with existing technology or very short development cycle technology, nuclear, electric, or nuclear thermal rockets. And, and as much as I like those for exploring the solar system and perhaps for this interstellar probe mission, they're technological dead ends to go to the stars. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, technically speaking, Voyager is an interstellar mission because in about 70,000 years, if it were pointed toward the nearest star, it would reach the nearest star. So technically, you know, we could launch a mission to another star system today but I don't think it's very practical to send a, a dead spacecraft on a 70,000 year voyage, right? 
And so mm-hmm. nuclear electric and nuclear thermal rockets might get that trip time down to 55,000 years. Okay, well, that's an improvement, but it's still not where we need to be. So I, I put those in the category, like I do chemical rockets, of things we need, but they're really technological dead ends. Even at 100% efficiency from a physics point of view, they just they just don't contain the energy density you need to get to the stars in a thousand years, let alone hundreds of years or a decade. And yeah, and in fact, Dr. White had said uh, something similar there. In fact, the uh, their approach over at Limitless Space, which he joined, was that, yes, uh, nuclear thermal or fusion thermal, those concepts are going to be good for interste- for interplanetary, but by the time we get to interstellar, which is sort of like step three, yeah, we're going to need to be looking at truly exotic means of, of space travel, but there's, there's time for that. So... It, it would it be again? Would it be fair to say that light sails they're considered the the solution for interstellar travel because everything we've got that, that can be realized now is too slow. Uh, everything that would be fast enough is still too exotic, too speculative, and like an uncrewed probe that it's got a small spacecraft, a wafer craft, and a big light sail. That this is what we can do right now. No. No, <laughs> I wish oh, it were. <laughs> I, I think it's something we might be able to do it sooner than the other approaches. Ah, uh, okay. But it's not something we can do right now. The the breakthrough Starshot people have, and and Dr. Philip Lubin, who came up with the approach of the the Starshot wafer with light sails, it's it's a really great idea. Uh, basically, you you build a small sail. Doesn't have to be as big as some that I've envisioned, which are square kilometers in size. Maybe this one's only a few square meters. But you you hit it with a really powerful, like, gigawatt laser uh, to accelerate it out of the solar system rapidly, carrying a spacecraft that just weighs a few grams. Now, that all sounds great until you start thinking about, do we have any materials that can survive gigawatts per square meter of energy deposition without becoming, you know, vaporized in the process? And the answer is maybe, maybe not. And the testing and the data and the verdict is still out on that. Uh, Then there's the question of, well, how do you power and build such a big laser and keep it collimated, focused, and coherent to to accelerate the the, the spacecraft? And again, there are people who have ideas how to do that and are testing some scaling up. But we got to scale up to have lasers where you have your own dedicated nuclear reactor to power them in order to send these probes off. So... When, when, when you say we could build them, I think, you know, compared to these other things like miniaturizing a fusion reactor to put on a spacecraft or trapping antimatter and putting it on a spacecraft, I think the, the light sail or the laser sail approach is probably less expensive and nearer term. But under no stretch of the imagination would I put it in the category of we could just go build it now. I, I don't right. think that's that's possible. Right. So not fair to say right now, more like eh, sooner other than later. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, okay. And, and please don't take any of these comments as being negative. I'm encouraged. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, oh, yeah. I'm absolutely encouraged. We need to take these first steps. We need to be making this fundamental research because I, I, I think going to visit and send probes to these uh, extrasolar planets we're discovering, that was the whole motivation for a lot of my career and for me writing writing my book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars. I mean, that was that that's what inspired me. And that's what I'm hoping to get that next generation of researchers that I can pass the torch to. Um, I really want to get them some some resources and inspiration 
So yeah, absolutely. We need to be, we need to be working on it. Yeah, well, also, yeah, I would very much like to talk to you about the books you have written and co-authored and edited, in particular, a previous volume of yours, which was an anthology of science fiction and scientific essays going interstellar. What kind of propulsion concepts did, did you explore in that book? Well, that book was a lot of fun to put together because it's an anthology of original stories by different authors. Uh, as well as some nonfiction essays, which are kind of the science behind the fiction. I would call that a precursor book to a traveler's guide. And mm -hmm. the different authors who contributed, just just like Matt, like you, you've contributed to the anthology, the Ross uh, 248 Project, which will be yep. coming out from Bain in the spring. You, you mm -hmm. wrote a nice piece on, on terraforming for that. And we had people write, like Dr. Greg Matloff, who's been the, one of the inspirations for me and kind of a mentor for me in light sales. He wrote a chapter on beamed energy propulsion and light sails for interstellar travel. And then we have short stories by uh, great writers like the late Ben Bova, Jack McDevitt, Mike Resnick, some, just some tremendous science fiction writers wrote original stories based on realistic, plausible scenarios. No warp drives with no offense to Sonny. You know, physics we know and understand, things that we might be able to engineer in the future, realistic scenarios. And, and the purpose of that collection was to entertain and educate. And I was thrilled that my publisher, Bayon Books, uh, created a uh, free teacher's guide that they make available in PDF format uh, from their website so that high school teachers uh, could, could download this and it could be part of the curriculum for uh, physics students to be exposed to literature and for the lit students to learn a little bit of science. So that whole thing ended up being an entertaining, educational, and, and in some schools, it's my understanding, it's actually been used in some some high school classes. Uh, so I, I feel real good about that anthology. It was it was quite a, quite a success and a lot of fun to put together. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing up the uh, Ross 248 project. We'll, we'll definitely get into that in a second there because uh, I have a lot of questions relating to that one. I think uh, the listeners are, would be interested to hear the details about that because fascinating subject. But my next question, speaking of you know, realizable things, concepts that uh, that we can do using known technology. The idea of sending humans to other star systems, right? If we're talking about uncrewed probes, light sails are uh, a good idea that, you know, we could realize in the near future. But in the meantime, are things like generation ships or cryo ships, are those what we're we're kind of stuck with if we're if we're being realistic and and we we are thinking of sending human beings to other stars? Well, I guess I have to once again put things in perspective. Um, if you want to accelerate a pineapple uh, to like ten percent the speed of light with one hundred percent efficiency, the kinetic energy of its motion just from traveling that fast with that weight—it's about a kilogram. Um, would have the equivalent of seven Hiroshima atomic bombs worth of energy. And, and to accelerate just something the size of a pineapple to 10% the speed of light, which would give you a 40 or 50 year trip time to the nearest star, uh, is an enormous challenge. If we then scale that up to sending, say, you know, a battleship or an aircraft carrier, which is probably the closest example of a closed ecosystem with people that you would have to a you know, an interstellar ship, uh, I, I think the challenges of doing that are just beyond anything that I can imagine right now. 
And so most of my work has been focused on the robotic probe with an eye toward enabling the human approach. But once you start sending these generation ships, I, I don't know if, if putting people to sleep is possible. It's science fiction. There are people working in torpor research, uh, hibernating. There, you know, there have been people who've survived being under the ice because they got cold, right? Um, but as far as I know, you still age. You don't, mm. you know, you don't get in your, you know, cryo bed looking like Viral Vic and, you know, wake up 50 years later and you've aged a day, you'd wake up 50 years later and you're near retirement age. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> so, you know, unless we find a way to turn off aging, I don't think the whole cryo or sleep approach will work, which means we're going to have to have generation shifts. And mm -hmm. that's fine, except now you got to keep people alive on this ship for hundreds of years and and have their descendants grow into taking over crew of the ship and you get into all kinds of ethical issues there. So that's where the ethicists need to come in. And, and we really need breakthroughs in biotechnology. Um, so I'm going to place the burden, you know, not just on the physicists and the engineers, but on the biologists out there to come up with some solutions to the problems that uh, the world ships burns. Mm. Well, take that cryogenics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But there, yeah. there's a reason. There's a reason that was a fad uh, well over 20 years ago, right? And not so much today. Yeah, I think I think today the fad is uh, a telomere lengthening. And but yeah, there's there's it's got that's got a long way to go. All that research, yeah. Um, so in terms of what I would really wanted to to get you on here to explain to me, um, I mean, I'm I'm relatively familiar with. Uh, the antimatter propulsion concept, right? You're slamming uh, hydrogen um, atoms and anti-hydrogen atoms together to create a big kaboom, and you channel that through a nozzle there that generates propulsion. It would take a really, really large amount of that, though, to actually um, accelerate a ship. And yes, and uh, Dr. White, he explained the Alcubier metric to, to myself and the viewers like we were 10 years old, but uh, what about the black hole drive? I've been hearing about this and the basic concept, I, I, I guess I, I'm familiar with, but do you have any any uh, information on that, on how that would work? Well, I, I'm not sure I know specifically which black hole drive you're talking about. I, I mean, I've, I've heard the notion that black holes are connected <clears throat> to white holes by a wormhole and you can short circuit yourself across the universe. I think there've been some uh, theoretical physicists who said these things might exist and that's wonderful. But there are no black holes close, <laughs> yeah, which is a good yeah. thing. Um, so you'd still have to develop the kind of interstellar drives I'm talking about or Sonny's talking about to get there to take advantage mm -hmm. of that black hole. So you'd still have to have some kind of more conventional interstellar drive just to get to where you want to take your shortcut across the universe. And then yes. I've also read speculative fiction about where you might generate a black hole ahead of your ship and mm. keep it there somehow. And your ship then gets attracted and accelerated forward. And if the black hole is always some fixed distance from the front of your ship moving with you as you're accelerating, then you're constantly falling into it and accelerating faster and faster. I, I think that violates conservation of momentum somewhere. So I'm really <laughs> dubious about whether that'll work or not. But I don't know if those are the ones you're, you're talking about. Uh, well, the, the first one, yeah, that is that is one that uh, I've heard. There, um, there's also a variation, what's called the halo drive, where if you allow your ship to fall into orbit around a black hole and it accelerates you and accelerates you, and if you then break off at the right time, you're then sort of, you're, you're catapulted to where you're going, but you better have a very good pilot or, or system there to do that, right? Um, 
There was one other, though, that said if you could generate a tiny black hole in a small chamber with, like, kind of lasers just firing on one little spot in the middle there and, you know, create a infinite mass density, then you'd have a miniature black hole that you could draw energy from. That's that's the best of my recollection. That is the black hole drive that I'm thinking of. Well, you're gonna put. I'm gonna put that firmly into the. I'm extremely skeptical category. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. uh, not only of the physics, but of how of how you would ever ever realize it. Um, you know, hmm. with things like antimatter, we don't know how to build the things that create antimatter to scale, but we know how antimatter is creating. Um, we, we know that you can store it if you have a perfect vacuum and strong electromagnetic fields. Uh, we just don't know how to make a strong electromagnetic field to contain antimatter and have a perfect vacuum at the same time, let alone generate enough antimatter to put in it. But we, we know generally how you'd start. But I have no idea how you'd start to do that. Uh, that mm -hmm. includes me. So I guess I'll have to defer to other people who know more about that <laughs> one than I do. Well, yeah, like I said, it's uh, well, it's definitely in the speculative column, and I do believe it's. Uh, I only read about it in the context of science fiction, but the guy who wrote it was uh, uh, Charles Strauss, and I believe he he has some uh, uh, training in that uh, in that. He domain, does. So. I've read yeah. about him, but I have not read about that particular activity. So to circle back to what you mentioned earlier about the Ross two four eight project. Um, I definitely, definitely uh, am very, very happy to be working on this with you and Ken Roy and the other authors, um, especially because it concerns the whole idea of red dwarf habitability. And that's been a major issue in recent years, hasn't it? Well, it's been in the news a lot. I've seen, uh, I'm not an exoplanet specialist, but I do keep up with what's going on in that field. And mm -hmm. since there are so many red dwarfs out there, people have been looking at, well, what is the habitability zone? Are these are these stars flare stars? Um, you know, could there be planets with life around these stars? And if so, they're going to be really close in. Um, uh, just just lots of interesting stuff to keep up with. Mm -hmm. And that's especially significant, right, for a bunch of reasons. In case for my viewers who may not be aware, the recent exoplanet discoveries there, the recent spate of them some of them have been very near to home and have involved uh red dwarf stars have they not that's my understanding yeah i've been like i say i keep up with it i check the uh, exoplanet database i won't say every day but probably at least once a month to find out if there's things that i haven't had come up in my you know google customized news feed <laughs> mm -hmm. um yes and uh, and I, I check sites like uh, like Universe Today, Space.com and those to look for these kind of articles because it's it's it's, you know, it's it's part of what motivates me. I like to find out what's out there. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, got a funny story or two about uh, Universe Today. In 2016, when the European Southern Observatory, they announced that right next door, there is a potentially habitable planet orbiting Proxima Centauri. And not long thereafter there, I think it was, yeah, 2017, they announced the TRAPPIST-1 system, seven rocky planets around one star, and, and three of them are sort of in the uh, the habitable zone. So it's discoveries like these that really brought the, the question, are, are red dwarfs habitable into focus? It is. And the Ross 248 anthology that uh, to which you refer, that, that's coming out from Bayon, we picked Ross 248 because there is no one's discovered planets around it yet. 
And we didn't want to pick Trappist because just as soon as we pick something that someone's already found, they're going to find reasons that it won't be what we think it is, right? Um, mm -hmm. With all the planetary systems. I've, I've written science fiction stories in the past that, you know, eight years after they're written, they're overcome by events and are stale because the science has has changed or surpassed what was written about. So we, we picked a, a, a red dwarf system that we don't really know if there are planets around it yet. And we're probably not likely to find out anytime soon. And that gave it a, a pretty rich realm for science fiction, you know, to figure out uh, what these hypothetical planets might be like. So I think people should think of it as taking the Trappist planets and putting them around a different star so that we have a fictional setting. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'd be really nice uh, to find out, you know, some statistics. And I think we're getting those statistics about the planetary systems that are around red dwarf stars. So you could do a better estimate, given that we know how there are a lot of red dwarfs out there. You know, how many of them have planetary systems and of what type? But to do that, you have to get, you know, lots of confirmed exoplanets around red dwarfs uh, to get, you know, numbers up so you can have some meaningful statistics. I think it'll be interesting to follow. Yes. So, and another aspect of red dwarfs that make them really important to astronomers and figuring out questions uh, related to their habitability is the fact that they're just so common, right? 75 to 80% of stars in any given galaxy are red dwarf suns. And from uh, what exoplanet studies have shown us, they seem to be very, very good at creating rocky planets around them. And now the question of habitability of red dwarf suns, though, what exactly, what challenges have we seen to that? Like, what what is standing in the way of us just going to the nearest red dwarf sun and setting up shop on uh, on one of its habitable zone planets? Well, again, I think it's the same thing that is basically stopping us from going to any other nearby star, right? I mean, the <laughs> technological challenges of getting there. Um, yeah. But we're also handicapped, even if we were to suddenly have a, a space drive that could get us to Proxima Centauri B, right, say in 100 years or less, and we suddenly had this breakthrough and we decided, all right, let's 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 go. Um, you would have to send robots first because at this distance, we still would not probably, most likely would not be able to know, are any of these planets, do they have atmospheres? Um, and if they do, what are those atmospheres like? What, what, you know, what are the, what is, what is the planetary surface like? You don't want to commit to sending, you know, people until you get that kind of data. And we're so far away, and those star systems are so dim, it's going to take a, a you know, next generation, after the next generation telescopes, probably, to get the kind of spectroscopic observation of the atmospheres of some of these, of these small planets, uh, let alone get imaging. And uh, those are the kinds of things I think we need to know before we commit to sending people. That's why I think we'll ultimately send robots first to do scout missions. There, there is one pretty exciting mission out there, though. It's called the uh, Solar Gravity Lens mission that's that's kind of spearheaded by uh, JPL's Dr. Slava Trudyshev. And that, that's the notion of basically putting a, a big telescope out at the Earth's solar gravity lens focus where the gravitational uh, bending of space-time by our sun basically forms a focus like a magnifying glass focus, not really, but similar, and allows you to magnify. And if you put a telescope there at the right place in the right time, you might be able to image and get really good data about one of these exoplanets. But that's a big mission to undertake. You have to go 550 AU, which is much farther than, you know, Voyager's traveled yet, and it's been flying for over 40 years. So we're still a ways from even that. But I think we're, we're looking at it. People are taking those first steps. 
And those are the steps we have to take, I think, before we'll ever, even if we had the technology to go now, uh, before we'd send people, we'd have to do those kinds of reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. And this actually, this, this ties in nicely with the whole issue of exoplanet studies, right? To date, our methods are largely indirect. We're looking forward to the day when direct imaging is going to be possible. But with red dwarf suns, that is particularly hard because, yeah, they're really quite dim. Uh, there, there are expectations that James Webb will be able to help out in this regard with its advanced infrared optics. But yeah, it's going to be a way. So we're, we're kind of stuck with theoretical approaches to the whole habitability question right now, huh? I think we are, and I yeah. think we'll be handicapped with that regard for a while. However, you have to remember, this field of study didn't really begin until the 1990s. I mean, it's a relatively new field. Those, that's when the first confirmed exoplanets were discovered. And, uh, you know, some of your listeners are like me. They remember the 1990s, and it doesn't seem that far ago, right? So I think who knows what's going to happen with James Webb and some of these successor instruments and telescopes over the next 25 years. If we come as far as we've come since the 90s in the next uh, 25, 30 years, then, you know, we may start getting some of that data. I don't want to underestimate the pace of technological change. I'm, I'm still optimistic. Yeah, it does seem to come down to uh, we're just going to have to wait on future developments some more and future discoveries. Well, you got to be careful, though, because, you know, your listener base is pretty broad, right? And, and you don't want to have too many people wait or nobody's doing so what you want to do is you want to have the people who have the skills who are listening to the show or, or students who are in college, graduate school, high school to say, you know, let's not wait. I'd like to help make that happen. And that might shape their career and actually contribute to getting the data we need. So let's be careful when we say let's wait. I don't believe in waiting. I think we need to get people moving so that it comes sooner than later. But again, that's my personality. I'm one of these, let's just do it people. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, yeah. And I like that. I like that attitude. Because there is a degree of cynicism, isn't there, when it comes to just the, the big missions, the big questions, the big tasks. They say, oh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Why are we talking about it? And that's a good point. It's like we're talking about it because we need to get rolling on this, right? If we're not already... Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. You're right. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the Apollo program was not born because the German rocket scientists and the science and politicians in the United States said, well, let's just wait and see what happens. Uh, it took a president to make a commitment that said, okay, no, we're just going to do this thing. And you, you, you have to have that. And, and behind that statement by the president were people who knew how to do it, or at least a path to take to doing it. I, I was fortunate in my early career to get to talk to some of the German rocket scientists before they passed, the ones who actually you know, built the first rockets, uh, the V2s back in World War II. And it, before the war, they were wanting to do this for scientific reasons. And of course, being, you know, good Germans, they were drafted into their army to do it for military reasons. But, you know, they were not going to wait. They said, we, we can do this. Let's just do it. And they did. Did that include Werner von Braun? I did not meet von Braun. He passed away before I moved uh, down here and started working uh, mm -hmm. in Huntsville. But I met uh, George von Tiesenhausen, uh, Conrad Dannenberg. I had uh, Conrad in our home talking to us about his experiences at uh, Pinamunda, building the V2s that, of course, were raining death and destruction on England. And then how that all transitioned into the development of our first generation ICBMs and the Redstone rocket here that, that eventually took Alan Shepard to space. 
So mm-hmm. it was it was really insightful talking to someone who who basically made the history that so many of us have just just read about. Well, yeah. Now getting back to that is a very very rich field, and I, I wish we uh, had more time, but I, I suppose we can say that for another episode. But getting getting back to the Ross two four eight project, so. In terms of what this book explores, like going interstellar there, we have science fiction stories and scientific essays. Now, a key part of this is terraforming, right? Like if in fact the planets that are orbiting red dwarf stars, if there are questions of if they're not quite up to our habitability standards, there are ways in which we could engineer them to to get them to that point. And for me, of course, that was a real source of fun to participate in this because, I, frankly, I love to talk about terraforming. Well, we, we asked you to write that essay because I'd read many of your online essays about terraforming, and it sure mm-hmm. seemed like you had a good understanding of the broad spectrum of what people are talking about doing. So, mm-hmm. no, that, that, that was a fantastic uh, contribution. Now, the Ross 248 project is really uh, the third in a, in a series of anthologies. They're all standalone and independent, of course. It began with Going Interstellar about how to get there and the technologies of going and the stories, adventure stories, of basically the people that go. And then it picked up with the Stellaris uh, People of the Stars anthology that I co-edited with Dr. Rob Hampson. And it was really about the human element and, and what will become of the people. Will we genetically engineer ourselves uh, what's the state of the art in some of the technologies for uh, human augmentation, for cryosleep, those kinds of things. And then we had stories pertaining to that in the anthology. And now the Ross 248 project, which is, you know, after you get there, primarily, what what do you do? And it's not uh, the stories don't all take place at the same time, because when you undertake terraforming, you again have to have that long view. You're not going to arrive and, you know, six months later, turn Venus into Earth. It might take centuries, right? So mm-hmm. you, you've got to have that long view. What are you going to do in the interim? And and how do the people and the generations of people that go going to deal with those challenges? You know, that's, that's where the human element comes in. I mean, we're still going to be people. So there's going to be deceitful people. There are going to be good people, dedicated people, slackers. And, and how do we deal with the unknowns that nature throws at us? So those are the the makings of good stories, right? And that's why I think that the stories that are in there, people are going to be learning something, but they're also going to just be on the edge of their seat entertained. If by my read of the contributor stories, at least I was, as I was editing, it, it was a great experience. And yes, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Venus and Mars. Yeah, terraforming has been something that we've been speculating about quite considerably since the early space age. In fact, I recently did an episode on terraforming for this show in which uh, I discussed how theoretical proposals going back to the early space age, especially from individuals like Carl Sagan, they looked at how we could terraform Venus and Mars, which are sort of at the opposite ends of the the habitability spectrum, if, if you will, and how that's going to, how we've been attempting to apply that to exoplanets in the near future. So what we find out there will be very, very interesting and challenging. And, and depending upon the environments we find out there, we'll, we'll be applying this theory and, and the lessons that we accrue over time to those. And yeah, that does bring us back to interstellar travel, though, correct? It's that we need to have a much better sense of what we're dealing with out there before we actually seriously contemplate how we're going to settle out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're, I would imagine 
And of course, things may change when we actually reach the point of doing this. I would imagine that the reconnaissance I spoke of, where you would want to get some data about the planets you're going to before you go with people, you would have to outfit the people and the, and the voyagers with the tools they need to terraform the types of planets that they're going to encounter. And that's why I would think you would want to have a lot of scientific data about each candidate planet so you could adequately assess, okay, for instance, in, in the anthology, there's a, a water world called Poseidon. You know, if you have a completely, almost completely covered world with, with water uh, and some kind of an atmosphere that's not necessarily immediately breathable, how, how do you modify that world versus one that might be more like Mars, right? Where it might have water, ice, frozen underground or as maybe every now and then flowing on the surface surface but otherwise it's primarily a dry desert-like landscape and so i would think you know before you set out on your trip you'd want to know what are we going to <laughs> um <laughs> yes so that we can take the right stuff and the right expertise and the right materials to 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 undertake this this challenge and then my, my uh, co-editor ken roy he, he really believes that we might not do any of that in the near term we might just go find a small lunar asteroid and build what he calls a shell world, which is basically you, you put a roof over the whole asteroid and create your own atmosphere in there and then uh, get the, 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 the surface to, to be what you need. So you, you create basically your own encased mini world that you have more control over while you're there. It's still a big undertaking, but it might not be as difficult to do as like terraforming Venus, for instance. So anyway, it's all intellectually interesting, but when you start getting to the details, even the people who thought about this a lot, you know, they don't have a real plan, at least that I've seen, that would, would cover everything you'd have to do in these worlds to, to make a biosphere to accommodate Earth life. I think there'll be, nature will throw a lot of surprises at us as we try to do that. Oh, absolutely. I mean... Any, any plans that we, well, we have no plans right now. Any proposals, I should say, that we have right now are still very, uh, are very highly theoretical. Yeah. There's no telling what kind of feedbacks will develop as we start doing all this uh, ecological engineering. Um, but yeah, a question I, I want to ask you is, do you imagine there will be a point in humanity's future where we actually do get a chance to terraform Mars or Venus? And, you know, would that be a worthy endeavor? Well, the answer to the first part of your question is I sincerely hope so. Um, I, I, I think we have to worry about the great filter, right? Mm -hmm. Are we going we gonna to filter ourselves out of existence or out of an industrial technological society before we have a chance to do that? And that, that is a, a risk. And it's, it's really become a real risk only in the last hundred years with the invention of nuclear weapons and now the biotech revolution. Uh, not to mention climate change, right? So we have our challenges to get through, but assuming we get through those, yes, we should. And in fact, I think one of the ways to survive the Great Filter is as soon as we have the capability to start modifying one of these worlds to be another home for humanity, we ought to start doing that. But I've got to be careful. I I'm not one who believes we ought to escape this beautiful planet, which is you know tailor-made for us or us for it because I don't think we'll ever find anything as beautiful and worth preserving as the Earth. And mm -hmm. so I, I think before we start talking about terraforming Mars and Venus, we need to talk about reverse terraforming Earth. 
uh, because we are, you know, with the carbon emissions and a lot of the pollution, we need to find ways to undo that and uh, and and make Earth more of the garden that that we live in than we are doing right now. So I, I want to be a good steward here too, and and mm. I think everybody should realize that I'm not an escapist. I don't want to run away from our problems. We need to yes. tackle them here at the same time we're doing these other things. Yeah, that is the challenge there. It's this idea of going interplanetary to save humanity. That's That certainly sounds like a very good goal, but it does sound like for some, this is a, an escapist plan. It's it's our parachute. We're, we're basically uh, riding Earth off and so forth. Yeah, the best argument I ever heard for settling on other planets and even ecologically engineering them was this will foster all kinds of technology and innovation that will help us here at home and who knows mars and venus could even be test beds for things that we will need to do here in order to basically repair all the damage we've done it could be absolutely yeah no no i have no no doubt that might be the case well in that respect i think we should definitely start looking to venus and uh seeing what we can do about that greenhouse effect there because if we can tackle that and get the bugs out man that will really come in handy uh, around here anyway is there anything else you want to throw in here in terms of the anthology or anything no i think i've talked about it a lot you covered a lot of the questions thank you um thank you and i, I appreciate you doing what you can to to uh, boost the viewership or readership of the anthology because anthologies are kind of hit and miss from Bayan and other science fiction publishers' points of view. But within the, the field of the science fiction genre, readers expect publishers to put out anthologies. And so it's it's an interesting conundrum for a publisher because their readership expects them, but they aren't necessarily big money makers, right? Mm-hmm. So promoting an anthology and the art of the short story, which is an art that not many people read or do today, right? I think reading in general is way down. And the art of a good short story is, is worth preserving and getting out there because you can explore a lot of really interesting ideas in the short form. And I think anthologies um, like the ones I've worked with for Bain, Going Interstellar, Stellaris, and now Ross 248 Project, it gives you an opportunity to, to stretch your mind in many different ways and not just be entertained, but maybe learn something along the way. But that, that's why I like the short form and the short story mixed with science fact. I think mm-hmm. it's... a it's my way of reaching to many me back when I was in middle school and high school and early college, because mm-hmm. I read a lot of things like that. So you see, so you ask a question and you get me going. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> at the risk of getting you going more. I actually heard from Professor Higgins about the Interstellar Symposium. And Absolutely. Yeah, and... Well, uh, l- let me tell you, these, these symposia, I'm one of the founders yeah. of the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop, which just became the uh, Interstellar Research Group with their annual symposia. And mm-hmm. they are a lot of fun. If if you've been to a science fiction convention, we try to have these technical conferences where you can get what you get out of a technical conference, good technical presentations in many fields, not just scientific. We have space lawyers, we have philosophers, ethicists, biologists, doctors give presentations about the various aspects that might surround going to the stars and taking the steps to go there, as well as astronomers, uh, SETI experts, uh, people who who are concerned about the uh, Fermi paradox. But we always, always have a public outreach night that involves uh, the community, 
where we bring in science fiction writers. And mm -hmm. at, at previous meetings, we've had uh, Greg Benford, Larry Niven, Jack McDevitt, um, Homer Hickam. We've had some some really big name science fiction writers. And if you're there, we'd love to have you participate in the panel as a science fiction writer, Matt. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I usually chair that outreach night and uh, Bay and Books publisher, Tony Weisskopf usually attends and mm -hmm. uh, is, is, is part of that. Actually, she usually moderates it. I just usually set it up and participate. So it, I think it's a great opportunity and I would encourage you and any of your listeners who have an interest in this topic, don't be scared away from it being a technical meeting. Yeah, there'll be a few papers that you'll sit there and you'll say, I don't get it. But if you go up afterwards and talk to the people who wrote the papers, don't bring it to the level you do get it. And I would say that probably well over half, if not two thirds of the papers, the audience will be, at, it'll be at a level that the audience can understand most of it. And we have a, a hospitality suite with snacks and drinks as much as the hotel allows. We typically have an art show for space art. We have lots of discussions and working groups. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I had the uh, one of the NASA science advisors for NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts Program come to a few of our meetings. And his, his quote was, Les, this has to be the most fun technical meeting I have ever attended. And hmm. coming from like the science advisor to NASA's NIAC program, that was a huge compliment. Mm -hmm. So anyway, enough of a commercial. Yes, you should <laughs> yeah. come. And so should your listeners. Uh, yes. uh, the uh, website is irg.space, www.irg.space. And the group is the Interstellar Research Group. The meeting will be in Montreal next summer, summer of 23. Yep. And that's the, uh, for those looking online, the 8th Interstellar Symposium. You'll find that easily enough there with the details. More coming as, as the date approaches. It's July... Uh, 9th to 13th, I believe. Yep, that's correct. And uh, if people are interested, we offer short courses mm -hmm. uh, in various topics related to interstellar travel, which go two to three hours. And they are uh, approved for continuing ed credits or professional engineering credits for those engineers that need to get it. Teachers can get their CEUs for that to help meet their minimum requirements for the year in continuing ed. Uh, we have little certificates we hand out that are approved by the orgs that allow you to do that kind of thing. So we, we really try to make this an outreach to as broad a community as we can. Absolutely. And, well, yes, education and outreach is one of the most uh, important aspects of, and I'd say probably one of the most enjoyable aspects of this whole thing. Well, thank you, Les Johnson, for joining us here and taking us through a wonderful romp through interstellar space, interstellar travel, and the potential for life down the road and a uh, reminder to all my listeners there i advise you to check out uh, the links that will be following in the episode data for the upcoming anthology the ross 248 project also for the traveler's guide to the stars and going interstellar and other volumes that mr les johnson here has given us over the years and also a reminder to check out the irg 2023 symposium which you can learn about by going to irg.space or just type in 8th Interstellar Symposium into your Google search engine and it will take you there. Promises to be a very interesting time. And so, Mr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be here, Matt, and I look forward to meeting you in person. <laughs> absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah, take and, care and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, you too. And this has been Stories from Space. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time. 
hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Thank you.